Herald of Steel beckons. War on the horizon. Chaos reigns supreme. But who will save us? Beckons of the Herald of Steel is a 5th edition homebrew campaign. It is a high fantasy and old school flavored campaign run by me, the young Rognard, and my friends. Let's meet those friends now. I am Anthony Santiago, and I'm playing Norhill Hammerstone, Dwarven Fighter. I'm Jared, and I'll be playing Jarzak, the Orc Warlock. I'm Ryan, and I'm going to be playing Klika, the Goblin Sorcerer. I'm Veronica. I'll be playing Anton, the Human Cleric. While many prophecies are written, our story has yet to be completed. Follow us into adventure. Welcome back to the podcast. It is I, Grognard the Young, the Young Grognard, kicking it to you live with another episode of the Beckons of the Herald of Steel campaign. And while I'd love to tell you which adventure and which quest it is, this is instead a wrap-up episode, which, to be honest, I never really thought I'd be doing something like this. Uh, when we set out making this campaign in the first place, I didn't really have in mind how long this would be stretched out for. I knew that this campaign would probably last up until the 10th level, but to be going on about 100 episodes now, about 75-ish are in print and ready to go, uh, ready for you guys to listen to, but I mean, I'd never thought that I'd be this deep into it with so many hours of gameplay available. So uh, a friend over at uh, Kaleidosphere podcast, um, real good guys over there, you should go check it out. But somebody had mentioned that, you know, having to dive in and check out the content is really difficult because there's just so much to get through. And so under their suggestion, and I guess a suggestion from pretty much everybody else who said that there's too much content to dive into... um, I present to you uh, the recap. But before I begin, I want to give a big thank you to everybody who's listened thus far uh, into the podcast. You guys are great. I know there's not a ton of you out there who have listened to everything, but everybody who has, I have really appreciated seeing all the listens popping up on every episode we put out. And I promise you that even though the game is pretty much just for me and my friends, Knowing that you guys have any sort of enjoyment coming from listening to the show makes me that much happier, and it definitely changes how I appreciate games. You know, having an audience and knowing I can make something really enjoyable for you guys, being able to provide twists and turns and cool, you know, cliffhangers and stuff, it's really gotten me to change how I approach the game. And so, without all of you guys out there listening, I wouldn't really have something to to push me to new heights and to try new things, so... Thank you all. And for anybody who this is your first time listening in on the show, and this is sort of your first time, you know, giving me a shot, all I can say is my style isn't for everybody. You know, it's not a super overproduced show. But one thing I can guarantee you is that I'm playing with my actual friends who I know in real life, you know. Uh, This isn't some feature show where I get a bunch of people from all over the internet to come listen in. These are people I know and I love, and I'm making a fun game for them to enjoy. And you can tell from listening to episode one all the way up until episode, you know, 75, 100, whatever, that we grow together, we learn a lot from one another, and there's quite a lot of inside jokes and fun to be had all the way through. So... 
what my project is now is to try to catch you guys up to the most recent episode uh, and to provide sort of a synopsis of what happens with every quest uh, and then every adventure and how in every quest each character sort of moves forward in their own individual storyline. So come on with me and let's give this a shot. And so to begin our tale, I think it's best to begin with the prologue as I guess tales typically do. Uh, our adventure began with some hints for the four players before we began in our session zero, where they heard about a few different plots that seemed to be uh, kind of important to the campaign at large. Uh, most importantly, I suppose, for the party is that Amaroth, the kingdom of Amaroth, uh, had just lost their king not too long ago to a strange and mysterious illness, which not many knew much about it. Uh, they just knew that it was pretty swift and sudden that the king was sick and then soon after died. His two sons, who could have taken up the throne, uh, also mysteriously disappeared on a hunting trip and died as well, leaving only one person behind, the princess, Queen Garavar, to take over the throne as the Queen of Amaroth. Now, many people thought that this was a pretty terrible thing, since she was young, she didn't know much about what she was doing, and in all public appearances, she seemed to be pretty bad at the job, um, leaving much of the kingdom to be in a sort of sense of disarray. And I guess the biggest reason why they'd be so upset about this is that war is on the horizon. To the west is an island known as Gorgareth, pretty much exclusively inhabited by orcs, who behave a lot more like Warcraft orcs than anything else, but they have begun sort of an all-out assault on the western coast of Amroth, and there's a lot of rumors that orcs have traveled farther inland, attacking various settlements such as, well, the kingdom of Amroth's capital, Eagleheart, and many of the towns surrounding it, including Cooperford, where our quest really takes place. Uh, the last of the things that are very important here, well, I guess two last things, uh, the dwarves to the south in the citadel of uh, silver and steel, the halls of silver and steel, that is, have pretty much locked their doors, and nobody knows what is going on within, as no dwarves have gotten out. Uh, rumors have risen that something terrible must be going on, because even dwarves are not being let back in. Um, beyond that, some rumors float around from doomsayers and seemingly mad men, as the name the Herald of Steel seems to come up every once in a while. It seems like all bad things have somehow echoed back that some strange force in the universe, known as the Herald of Steel, is behind it. But with this in mind, I guess it's time to introduce our heroes, which anybody who's listening to the podcast once has come to know our friend Klika. Klika is a goblin sorceress who is played by my friend Ryan, and she is quite a curious and interesting, uh, if not naive, uh, character. She is, I would say, the most childish out of the group, but she's probably the most hospitable and pleasant out of everybody as well. Uh, her character is, from what she knows and what she has proclaimed, a orphan who was found in sort of a magician's lair, I guess, uh, amongst many other mages here. She was made to serve as a cleaner, and that's where her name Klika came from, as it was sort of a shorthand or goblinish sort of accent on the term cleaner. 
but she fights mostly in melee with a charisma that's incredibly low for what it's worth, and I oftentimes make jokes about this. The next character in the group is Anton of Gloriwake, who is a priest of the light, uh, played by my friend Ronnie. Uh, Anton is a very good character who takes up the path of the Illuminator, the Illuminator being sort of a stand-in god for many of the portfolios, or I guess domains as they're known, uh, for clerics, uh, representing both the light, wisdom, understanding, healing, all that good stuff. People who follow the light often are known to follow sort of a path of righteousness, picking sort of a cause to champion. In the case of Anton, that involves charity and selflessness as his major causes. Uh, Anton is very solemn, soft-spoken in many cases, but Anton has very many moments where he stands up for what he believes in. He's sort of a middle-aged human, and he... Certainly acts as a voice of reason, but as you'll find out from listening to the show, there's a lot of moments where Anton kind of surprises us with a, sort of a sense of justice that nobody truly expects from him. It's definitely safe to say that Anton is very thoughtful about his religious practices and is more than willing to provide that charity to anyone who needs it. The next character in our lineup is Norhill. Uh, Norhill is a dwarvish fighter played by my friend Anthony. And he is pretty much as dwarfy as dwarves come. There's an accent, there's a lot of stern grumblings, it's pretty dwarfy around here. But uh, Norhill stands by his decisions, and he is definitely a very honorable character. He is known to do the right thing, even sometimes behaving lawfully stupid in order to do what's right by the law, but his mind is always towards his homeland, and always towards his people, and to pretty much anyone who he could call friend. Very trustworthy, and very blunt, to say the least. And that brings us to our last character here, which is Jarzak. Uh, Jarzak is an orc warlock who plays as a Hexblade. Uh, he is played by my friend Jared, and Jarzak is, you know, not to pick favorites here, but I think from a literary perspective, if you're into that kind of thing, Jarzak, I think, may be my favorite character in the story of the Beckons of the Herald of Steel. I certainly don't give him any free rides, and I don't treat him like my favorite. Uh, anybody who's listened to the show and heard about Valaketh will certainly know that he gets picked on, I think, more than anybody else. But Jarzak is... A very driven and a very motivated character, but unfortunately, that drive and those motivations have seemed to lock him up into a relationship with a patron who takes great advantage of everything Jarzak's willing to offer him, and demands much in return. Jarzak is good to his party, but he's definitely an individualist, and he's definitely carving his own path with those who help him get along the way. He's not exactly an evil character by any means, but I think a lot of times the hard edge and sharpness of his character in the beginning of the series gives him that appearance, but as time goes on and the party begins to mean a lot more to him, you see a lot of growth, and it's kind of on a, it's pretty awesome to be totally frank with you. Well, while I'm on the topic of Jarzak, I suppose it makes sense to actually go a little bit more in-depth about Valaketh himself. Valaketh is sort of an antithesis to the Illuminator. Uh, Valaketh is known otherwise as the Deceiver, and for much of the show we just refer to him as that. Uh, but he is a god of darkness and deception. He's often shown to be a shadowy figure, 
uh, brought on by many, many swarms of insects. He is cruel, and he has some pretty bad one-liners, but his big deal is just twisting people around deceptions, taking advantage of good situations where people desperately need him, and screwing them over in the most brutal way he possibly can when the time is right. So, now that we have our characters all lined up, I suppose it's time to dive into the adventures and the quests of our campaign. Uh, to begin, I guess, a little bit of explanation here, the way I've broken my campaign up is into adventures and into quests. Adventures are broken into two quests each, sort of like a, a side A and a side B. Uh, the adventures uh, all have a name that seems to reference some important element of that part of the series, whereas the quest is a little bit more poetic at times. The first of these adventures is known simply as the Queen, with the first quest being Scraping the Barrel. This quest runs from episodes 1 through 8. So our heroes meet in the town of Glory Wake with an understanding that the town of Cooperford to the north and to the east, is a, you know, it's a town within Amroth, but they require a great bit of aid. Uh, apparently people have gone missing, teenagers specifically, uh, strange ghostly sounds can be heard within the town. People are leaving by droves, knowing that this situation's not getting any better, and when strange sort of rotten remains of animals, uh, some set on fire out around the outskirts of the town, are found, it's definitely a sign that they need some outside help. So the outside help comes, and this is our party. Uh, through an interesting series of killing of zombified goats and doing some sleuthing around town, the party uncovers some strange truth about an invisible man who claims to have at one point been in charge of a death cult of Orcus, but apparently he had been deceived by some supernatural force and was cursed with invisibility. This invisibility has driven him nearly mad, and as the party try to get down to the bottom of who's in charge of the cult now, they have run-ins with a terrible woman named Alimia, who seems to sweep Jarzak off his feet. And as you'll find in the show, Jarzak's definitely uh, one for women in power. Whatever that has to do with anything, who knows, but it's pretty hilarious. Uh, Klika and Jarzak really established themselves in this quest as being a duo, whereas Norhill and Anton established themselves as a separate duo. Jarzak and Klika are definitely a little bit more comical and a little bit more whimsical, and Anton and Norhill are a little bit more serious in tone, getting things done in their own respect. So after the party finds out a secret operation whereby uh, captives were captured by Olimia, locked into barrels, and sent downriver to a secret hiding place known as Fort Southwatch, a long abandoned fort. Uh, these people were being sacrificed to the god Orcus. The party put an end to this terrible cult and made a name for themselves as heroes in this area, uh, and definitely got a bit of notice from the queen herself as being sort of an icon of champions in this area that she could potentially uh, hire and patron, sort of lording them around and showing the people of the land that she is a good queen and she has good people beneath her who are going to save them from war and from all the evil things that are going on. Uh, during this quest, a few important things happen where Anton certainly establishes himself as being a light cleric by battling off quite a few shadows and undead while in the fort. <clears throat> it's definitely made clear that Jarzak is not as buff as the other characters, and an ongoing joke about swimming appears at this point. 
And Kliga has her first run-in with a very peculiar uh, situation whereby people find that they know her without knowing her. And in this case, while the party are traveling downstream in barrels, uh, I guess a side note before we dive into that point, Cooperford's barrel making is sort of important to the campaign at large, as barrels are very important for transporting gear, foodstuffs, and whatnot. And in war times, this is definitely an important thing to keep note of. So, orcs from Gorgareth, who have come here, seem to be hijacking a lot of these barrels along the path too, hoping to find resources that might help them while they're scouting out the territory. So as a group of orcs pop open one of these barrels and find Klika inside of it on her way to the fort, uh... The head orc seems to recognize her in some way, not really explaining how or why this is the case, but gifts her a knife, a dagger, an enchanted dagger with a little skull on the pommel and glowing green eyes, which she nicknames Flicker. While attuned to this weapon, she's able to speak orcish, and, uh, yeah. It's definitely a potent weapon for a group of level ones at this point, but... Yeah, that about wraps up the first quest, which leads us to the second quest, known only as The Way of the Queen. This quest runs from episodes 9 through 22. Our quest begins with the party going to the capital of Amaroth, Eagleheart, where the queen, Alvir Garavar, resides. The party, in great celebration of their good deed, are brought there in carriage to have a wonderful dinner in their honor, Plenty of nobles show up, as well as the queen herself, and they are honored in the queen's court with a big fancy meal. This is kind of an important moment for role-playing for the party, as it's made very clear that the party are different from everybody else. They're certainly not nobles, they're certainly not super refined or anything like that, to the point that they're sort of a spectacle to everybody at the dinner, and treated as sort of like an object in, in some cases by some of the nobility there. The queen, during this whole dinner, makes a couple of guffaws and behaves kind of like a boob for a lot of it, to the point that you can tell many of the nobles have a level of disrespect for her or dis, you know, disdain for her for whatever it's worth. Um, but the party are invited to speak with her in private quarters after the meal is over. When they go to meet with her afterwards, she explains to them that she has a very important and intricate plan for how to take care of the orcs that are raiding her west coast uh, over by Glory Wake. Her plan is very devious, very intricate, and sort of a very strange departure from how she behaved before. It strikes the party that perhaps she's quite a bit smarter than she's led on before. But the strangest part, I guess, of all of this is that her request is for the party to capture a hydra somehow and to bring it to a war front that she anticipates as orcs are going to be landing by boats on the western shores. She thinks that by presenting the Hydra and surprising the army with it, uh, having it quite literally like spring out of a jar to attack them, might be enough to show that she's not messing around in this war effort. So with that, the party are sent on their way to go to the swamps of Urigig, which are pretty far away, so that they might find a wizard who used to work with the old king before he died in order to make a scroll of shrinking, and uh, it turns out that this quest takes a lot more steps than one might expect. Or I guess in true RPG fashion, it takes tons of steps to do one simple task, as the party are sent then to go deal with a hill giant, sorcerer, who has taken a town by force, 
and take care of a group of bandits who have taken another town by force. Um, they kill the hill giant and find in his strange collection of loot a slab of metal, which is amongst plenty of rusted metal, but untarnished, magnetic, and, like, near perfect. Uh, it's a small rectangle, like, the size of a remote control, and it's just perfect, shiny metal, right? The party then travel to Gabora, where they find a bandit group known as the Shendelgrip, named after a very strange magical crossbow known as the Shendel Grip, seeming to possess whoever uses it. The party free a strange thief and alchemist from the town uh, after he's to be hanged for cheating in cards. Uh, they overthrow the bandit leaders, nearly burning down half the town to do so, as true adventurers do. And after they get all the alchemical supplies they need to, they put together a magical scroll and head on their way. But on their journeys, they encounter two very strange things. Uh, first of all, they go through the Forest of the Wandering Swordsman, which is known for a ghostly visage of a swordsman from days old who protects travelers, if they are good, and kills evil critters, I guess if they're evil, uh, protecting travelers, as it were. The party, obviously, pay their respects and offer many gifts uh, in exchange for hopefully good graces on their travels. Uh, the second major thing they find is a Tomeguard warrior being attacked by agents of Felyur. So Tomeguard are sort of magical knights in this campaign setting who behave as sort of the police of magics and just act as a third force in the world where they operate outside of the law, just trying to make sure that all magic that is being used is being used properly and responsibly. Uh, in a lot of cases, the Tome Guard get in trouble with different governments and kingdoms and whatnot because they step in when somebody is using too much magic or using magic in an inappropriate fashion, and so they're kind of a shaker in the world, doing a very important job, but one that steps on many toes. The agents of failure, however, are a cult of assassins that worship the god Felyur, uh, an immortal god, sort of like Valaketh. Uh, this god is a spider covered in tons of eyeballs who sort of relishes in assassinations, uh, making the agents of Felyur a very dangerous and ruthless group uh, to deal with. So the party find a tome guard so uh, warrior who has been waylaid on the road, and the Tomeguard warrior was apparently sent to go find that same hill giant and find that strange metal slab. So whatever this metal slab has for a purpose or meaning is lost to them as the agents of failure killed her and the party soon after, well, killed them. Um, but now, with the scroll in hand, the party manages to go to the swamps of Urigig, battle off the lizards who defend the Hydra and worship it, and capture, by shrinking, this hydra, and put it into a glass jar. The party have very strange hijinks and travels on the road, fighting a giant scorpion, where a very classic joke of Anton being cracked open like a can of soda by the scorpion, while all the other characters are asleep, uh, definitely one we look back on fondly is probably the funniest moment of the early leg of the campaign. Uh, the party from here meet Jezorn, who is sort of a high-ranking official, of the ranger's company that works in the kingdom of Amaroth, where they present to him sort of the queen's letter of their importance and their role in this whole endeavor. And they provide the uh, shrunken hydra, preparing to release it from its cage at the 
sort of the meeting place where they're going to uh, prepare to fight off the orcs. But as the orcs land and the party prepare themselves for an all-out battle with orcs, many, many orcs here, uh, the walls of the gulch that they had taken as sort of a choke point to fight off this army begin to crumble in on them and begin to sort of like collapse in on them in a way that feels like the earth is sort of literally swallowing them. Um, using magic, our heroes barely make it out of there alive, leaving only a few survivors at all, uh, which would... <laughs> In a very, very funny way, our party has come to know this, known this event as the Impromptu Mass Tomb, which we joke about on quite a few occasions. Um, but the party feel the need now to travel back to the Queen and go tell her what has happened, as some strange and supernatural force must be afoot that killed both the Queen's army and the Orc's army that had met here for this battle this day. So I suppose for important character milestones along this path, uh, one of the most important points is that Klika and Jarzak really solidify their friendship, but Jarzak definitely solidifies his position with the Deceiver, as he's told on many occasions that he will do as the Deceiver tells him to. And in many cases, he's sort of sworn to do whatever it takes, even if that means doing terrible things to good people. Um... Klika, on the other hand, has really established herself as a very naive and friendly character, uh, sort of demanding a tally of how often she introduces herself by saying, Hi, I'm Klika. A very personable character, um, but also one who definitely doesn't like to get dirty. The inside jokes of her trying to keep clean come out really strong in this series at this point. Uh, Norhill gets an important little bit of character information as... The Tomgard warrior that they find along the road had a crumpled up letter in Dwarvish that basically said the dwarves inside are being killed in the Halls of Silver and Steel. Some strange force is afoot, everything is lost, and they don't think that they have enough time to really get out of here. So that's terrifying, to say the least, since Norhill has a family, including a wife and a son, and I believe both of his parents were in there at the same time too. This brings us to the second adventure series in the game, and that is known as The Master. The first quest of the series is known as Schemes and Shadows. This quest takes place in episodes 23 through 30. To begin the quest, as soon as the party leaves the impromptu mass tomb, uh, they head on their way for glory. So after the impromptu mass tomb and the atrocity that took place there, the party head on their way to Glory Wake in order to get something of a foothold uh, after everything that had occurred. Uh, Glory Wake is significant uh, not only to Amroth for being sort of a second capital on the west coast, but it's also where Anton was raised in an orphanage and where he found his faith. So they naturally stayed at the church of the Illuminator in Glory Wake, where Anton was gifted the title of Lightbearer, which made him sort of like a traveling uh, bishop, a, a saint, some sort of very high-profile religious affiliation. Uh, he was reluctant to take on this role, assuming that somebody else might be more fit for the position, but the high priest gave him sort of the impression that he was doing very important work and that his role in establishing faith in others was pretty tantamount with what he had done. 
Um, from this point, the party leaves on their way to go talk to the queen and cross pretty much the entirety of Amroth, going to the other side here to Eagleheart. But along the way, they are assailed by more agents of Felyur, and it becomes very apparent that these aren't just random encounters, and in fact they are being targeted and potentially hunted by the agents of Felyur themselves. So after the party makes it nearly all the way home, uh, they stop in the Forest of the Wandering Swordsmen, where in their sleep they are attacked, but luckily the swordsmen, who they had previously gifted um, much food and, and resources, they were repaid by the swordsmen protecting them in their sleep. The party arrives finally at the castle in Eagleheart, where they meet with Jaden, sort of the right-hand man of the queen, and he tells them that she has gone into hiding and nobody knows where she is. They say there's been a few attacks on the queen, and for that reason she's gone into something of hiding. Uh, a maid comes in afterwards and starts to clean the room that they're staying in, only to reveal herself as the queen, and to tell her, uh, tell the party that she has, in fact, been the target of many attacks on her life, and... Yeah, so basically at this point, they're told they need to go locate a book and go locate sort of a master of the occult in order to find out how they can get rid of the agents of Felyur and how to get them off their butts. Um, they're told to go find a book of Schemes and Shadows, where the quest gets its name, and to talk with Dashmani the Wicked, who lives in Dustwind. So Dustwind is probably the most fantastical location in this leg of the campaign, Dustwind is a desert in pretty much the middle of a not-so-deserty area. There's plenty of grasses and trees beyond, but for a nice sort of circle, perfect circle around the southern reach of the Akeratos Mountains, there's just desert lands. It's just very barren and very difficult to do anything, but Dustwind itself is sort of a jewel amongst the sands, uh, just at the base of the Akeratos Mountain. Um, it sits uh, with a castle built under the mountain, and a giant library, and a massive uh, bazaar of marketplaces. Just tons and tons of business to be done here, as it is sort of a crossroads for the entirety of the country of Amaroth, as well as a pretty quick gateway to the coastline, where plenty of free market trading happens. Dustwind itself is its own separate little nation, so it definitely builds up a little bit of tension with the Queen of Amroth with its standing position as an independent group. Uh, but the party make their way here. They find the book and pay a steep price for it. They also find their way to Dashmani, and they're ambushed when they're, they're uh, sort of caught in a trap, an illusionary trap where they think Dashmani is actually there, but in fact, uh, Dashmani is in a back room while the Tome Guard, sort of the magical police there from before, uh, they instead pop up and ask why it is that the people are looking for these sort of gear and asking about the book, asking about failure and all that other stuff. Uh, after they sort of have a tense negotiation, it almost breaks into a fight, one of the Tome Guard actually recognized Klika, and it becomes apparent that they were there the day that Klika was spared uh, from her captivity amongst the mages. And for that reason, the leader of the Tome Guard, who was being kind of a hard-ass the entire time, lessens up when they hear this and pretty much let them go on their way on the Queen's Accord. Um, Dashmani has a moment with Jarzak where he sort of tells him that he trusts him, and there's sort of like a weird, warm understanding between the two orcs. Um, but with this information, 
Dashimani also tells them that if they're looking to really get to the bottom of what's happening with the aspect of failure and the eyes of failure, he's going to have to find somebody who's on the inside. And thus he's given information of a monk who lives out in the middle of the Thalvir Wood, the elven lands out here to the far west, south of Glorywake, uh, a man named Obroth, who has forsaken his role in the cult, and instead, now, he is something of a monk who lives out a life of solitude with few students who also were monks, uh, I mean, also, sorry, also were assassins turned monks now. But at the same time, while staying in Dustwind, Klika, in her ever-so-boundless curiosity, ends up in the largest library in Dustwind. And this is where she meets a very peculiar fellow, who happens to be Lord of Dustwind itself, his name being Ador Olmgrabert. But he, a peculiar fellow, decides to take Klika to a secret room beneath the library and tell her all these different strange stories of Dustwind and strange stories of dragons. Uh, Klika eats this up because, one, she loves stories, and two, she loves dragons. But above all else, she feels a strange kinship with this strange man who's telling her stories down in the basement. But at a certain point, she seems to doze off and falls asleep and... Uh, Jarzak, who can't seem to get to sleep knowing that Klika might be somewhere out in the middle of the night, saves her and brings her back uh, asleep, seemingly because of magic of some sort. So, now that the party have found Obroth after traveling all that way and being attacked a few times by agents of Felyur, our party hear that the Eye of Felyur, uh, the agents there, um, they have been taking up residence in the Akeratos Mountains in a deep, deep crag deep beneath the mountain in an old gnomish compound known as Bolt's Crag Peak. Uh, they're told also that the current leader of the group is actually Obroth's sister, Antonea, which, a running joke in the show is, we get the name wrong at first and the name kind of changes about six times throughout the episodes, so... If you're watching or listening in, uh, it definitely might get a little bit confusing when it's Antonea, Antonea, and so on and so forth. But with that in mind, the party are told that they would try to spare her if they could, but it might not be so simple. Well, this leads us to our second quest in this adventure, and that is Lightning in a Bottle. Uh, this one runs from episodes 31 to 36. Uh, it begins with the party traveling all the way back to the east coast of Amaroth uh, to go find Boltscrag Peak at the top of the Akeratos Mountains. Uh, along the way, they deal with yet again more attacks and um, see that the Herald of Steel has definitely made more of a name for himself out here as there's been plenty of violence along the way by the Iron Maelstrom, his strange makeshift metal soldiers here. Uh, but as the party travel up into the mountain, they have to battle plenty of strange monsters along the way. And finally, once they reach the top, they find strange mechanical contraptions that only come back surging into life when electric magics are used against it to power it up again. Once they travel deep within Boltscrag Peak, they realize the technological advancements that the gnomes had as the place begins to kind of fire up with lights, and as they descend down metal corridors into here, they find automatons coming back to life, but the one most particular automaton to come back to life is uh, Boltini, which is sort of like the uh, AI to the whole place, and answers commands and whatnot. 
the party managed to trick Boltini on a couple occasions, as well as plea with uh, <laughs> Boltini to spare them as a bunch of uh, weaponry seems to rearm itself and prepare to kill these new intruders. Um, but there's no gnomes within this place. Even though it is a gnomish compound, it's pretty much a ghost town. Uh, and what they find as they travel deeper and deeper within is sort of a conspiracy uh, from a war that had occurred a hundred years ago. Uh, it's been known as the War of the Bleeding Stones, and it's known as that because the dwarves who made up the southern border of Amroth here, or at least this portion of Amroth, um, deep in their minds, the stones begin to bleed just before probably the most damning battle of the entire war, whereby the united forces of chaos sort of trampled over the mountain and nobody gave anybody any sort of warning. And so the south side of Amroth was pretty well destroyed without even a peep of warning from Boltzcrag Peak, actually in specific. What they found when they were exploring through Bolt's Crag Peak, is that something had jammed the the machine that sort of kept all the machinery in this place going, sort of a, a giant clockwork device. They jammed it with an electric war pig, which now uh, belongs to Norhill as his primary weapon. Uh, but slowly but surely, Jarzak begins to realize that Valaketh, the deceiver, may actually have a lot more to do with this than not. They find a prison cell uh, that's filled to the brim with old skeletal remains of the gnomes who worked here, and they appear to have been completely jammed into there and locked up, but the whole place is covered in bugs, like an ocean of bugs and insects here as um, they open up the door and see what's inside. And again, Jarzak is definitely given the impression that Valaketh had something to do with all of this, some sort of grand deception. Um, but as if to nail a, uh, <laughs> a last nail into the coffin here, when they finally reach Thubani's chamber, Thubani being the leader of the outpost uh, at Bolt's Crag, they find Thubani's corpse uh, sitting at a command station, and it seemed to have unplugged and turned off the uh, alarm system that would have warned anybody of the approaching army. Um, and thus, I guess if Thubani hadn't been tempted by the Deceiver or killed by the Deceiver or whatever had happened, the war probably would have been over a lot sooner with far fewer deaths. Um, but continuing their trek and their journey, uh, Jarzak definitely had a couple of moments to himself where he could speak with the Deceiver, and the Deceiver was certainly forward about him not questioning anything, and instead hearing that Thubani uh, was sort of made an example because Thubani didn't follow directions of the Deceiver, and that, well, Jarzak may someday have to kill Klika or whomever just to uh, get the job done, whatever it is that the Deceiver wanted, and Jarzak agreed to this with no issue. Sort of the darkest moment of Jarzak as a character was agreeing that his best friend in the entire world, Klika, could be... I guess, disposed of if the desire arose from the Deceiver. But the party ventured farther down into Boltzcrag Peak, going into an old uh, gnomish dwelling, sort of like a, a small community underground, uh, like a, almost like a small city contained underground in a big bubble. And when they came down here, they fought off the forces of darkness and evil before finding a giant well that seemed to go even deeper into darkness. And the darkness beyond was so deep that they figured that Felyur must be waiting down there. And this is truly the case, as they found Antonea, 
uh, as, well, as well as an aspect of Felyur. They battled hard with both of them. Uh, Anton was dropped at one point in this combat and sort of set the tone for a lot of combats to follow where uh, Anton sort of gets dropped within the first round of a boss fight and just is kind of out for it. But Antonea, realizing that Anton died, or at least was dropped, trying to save their lives, uh, did whatever she could to prevent the aspect of failure from killing Anton completely within the Darkened Realm. And this act got a little bit of pity from the party, as they figured she must know something about what's going on here. And by what's going on here, I mean the metallic portal that is in the lair of Felyur down here in the bottom. Uh, it is a strange, perfect, shining metal beacon, sort of like a, a perfect arch, and within it is just shining what almost looks like a cosmic space, like a sky, like a night sky, but it seems to like warble almost kind of like a, uh, sort of like bubbles on a bubble wand. Um, and as Klika gets closer, it becomes a little bit more distinct and a little bit more stable, uh, but as that strange metal plate that they had found before on the hill giant in Glint, uh, when that gets closer to it, it also seems to stabilize it a bit. What they notice on this arch is a strange hole missing out of it, out of this perfect structure, almost like some piece of metal could be fitted into it. But unfortunately, the slab that they have, though definitely magnetically uh, inclined towards this portal, it doesn't fit. And thus begins sort of the need to hopefully revive Antonea and see what she might know of this place. Because from what we could tell, this probably has something to do with the Herald of Steel himself. And this brings us to the next adventure series, known as The Elders, with the first quest being The Value of Life. So, the party now with Antonea in check, uh, make the, tr the long, painful travel from the mountaintop all the way down to Eagleheart itself, uh, but along the way they encounter a white dragon, or at least not directly encounter, but certainly know of its presence, and because of their dire straits, and because of the position they're on on the mountain, it definitely doesn't seem in their best interest to go picking a fight with a dragon, unless they do their best to avoid it. But unfortunately for them, as they approach Eagleheart, they can't seem to avoid the Iron Maelstrom of the Herald of Steel, as they seem to come directly face-to-face -face with a small battalion of these sort of zombie-looking people filled with metal. Um, they fight fiercely, and when some of them die, they explode into shrapnel, but they're definitely single-minded sort of automatons following whatever the direction may have been given to them by the Herald of Steel. The party make it to the capital and meet with the queen, and the queen agrees that she's willing to give a diamond to the party in order to resurrect Antonea, as she, the queen, believes that she might know some information about the Herald of Steel, and it might be helpful in order to figure out what they need to do to vanquish this new enemy, who seems to be holding the city under siege and popping up in all different places, causing tons of destruction and, and well, I guess pain. Um, but the agreement is that Antonea, in exchange for the diamond, is going to be able to question, interrogate, and potentially torture Antonea for whatever information she might have. And this sort of shows us kind of a turning point in the character of the Queen Elvir. Um, 
it seems like at this point she's taking on a lot more of a stressed out and anxious role, but she's definitely not afraid to be pretty brutal to get what she has to get. Justified, maybe, but intense, definitely. So that the party travels all the way to the uh, West Coast again for Glory Wake, where they meet with the High Priest uh, of the Church of the Illuminator, High Priest Thrale, who agrees to revive her but is afraid that such a magical intervention, such a miracle, as in this setting, revivals don't just happen all over the place, and they're viewed as sort of a, a miracle. The high priest fears that such a magic spell might actually kill him in the process, just because it takes so much out of a person to be able to conduct such a ceremony. So, in the meantime, while he prepares the ceremony and prepares everything to do the process, the party agree to work alongside Jezorn, the ranger from before, um, in order to help protect Glorywake from the orcs of Gorgareth, who have come back since, you know, the last encounter, uh, to provide quite a bit of difficulty and, you know, that whole war thing that they were all bent out of shape about. Uh, the party hear about a strange monster living in the woods that seems to be killing a ton and ton of woodworkers as well as rangers who are setting up sort of a outpost to keep orcs at bay on the coastline. Um, but uh, when they are asking around about this monster, they encounter a very strange alchemist who offers to give them potions in exchange for blood of the monster. Uh, he alludes that it's some sort of lycanthrope, and the party agree tentatively to this agreement. Um, the party make their way through the woods, fighting off tons and tons of enemies, including orcs, um, but they also run into a few werebore and a were-tiger. This were-tiger, uh, recognizes Klika in some way and labels her the Child of Destiny. Jarzak is wounded gravely in the fight by a werebore, and... Well, I guess he contracts lycanthropy. This is uh, to great disappointment of the Deceiver, as the Deceiver sees this as sort of, um, you know, my lycanthropy in this campaign functions a little differently than other lycanthropy does. So with Jarzak being inflected with this, the Deceiver is definitely greatly upset by this, as it seems to shake the the sort of contract, the bond that the Deceiver has with Jarzak directly. And thus Jarzak is told that he must overthrow whoever it is that might hold lycanthropic uh, powers over him. Um, they find out that this uh, lycanthrope's name is Sirithal, and Sirithal has been banished from elven lands for what he has done to other elves. Uh, the party... Um, decide to go back and witness the miracle taking place. Uh, once they have the miracle take place, they also find their friend Shereel, who was the original leader of the Death Cult in the first quest. Uh, he has lost an arm in a battle with orcs, and he is more than happy to now be a follower of the Light, inspired by Anton and the party to do the right thing. Uh, the party, speaking with Antonea, hear that the portal most definitely had something to do with the Herald of Steel, as in her meetings with the Aspect of Failure, there was a strange, metallic, monstrous being in there that was sort of giving a lot of orders to Failure, hearing much the demands, and just an overall evil guy. Uh, but he definitely came through that portal and broke it upon, enter, uh, upon exiting the portal. Uh, but if the party wants to hear anything else about the portal and how to get to this land of immortals that the Herald of Steel had come from, they would need to speak with the elves. 
so once the party returns home uh, to Glory Wake and, you know, have this whole meeting about the, uh, the revival of Antonea, they encounter the uh, pair of halfling twins, uh, siblings, Caracol and Margay, who appear to be bounty hunters looking for that alchemist. The party easily agree to help the bounty hunters catch their quarry, and they agree, the uh, halflings agree to offer them their cut of the reward if ever they find themselves in Quarrydale, a territory filled with gnomes and halflings south of Eagleheart and south of the Akeratos Mountains, south of, uh, sorry, to the east of Dustwind. Um, but with that being said, the party take it upon themselves to travel to Elvish lands to see what they can find. And that leads us to the next quest. The second quest of this series is known as The Last Rites. And The Last Rites takes place from episodes 43 through 48. Our party agreed to enter the elvish lands of the Thalvir Wood, uh, to enter the elven city of Aeserys, where hopefully they can figure out uh, whatever the queen or whomever might know about these portals and what they can do to close it or to find a way to potentially kill off uh, the Herald of Steel. Uh, being led in by Sirithal, who agrees to help them, being sort of dumbstruck and awestruck by Klika, uh, calling her over and over the child of destiny for some reason, um, they are led in to the outskirts of the city, but then they're met by a series of ghostly elves, uh, who lead them the rest of the way. Um, when the party enter Aeserys, the, go uh, the city of the elves here, um, they're immediately led in to speak with the Shaysir, which are a council of elves, and uh, they basically speak their plight to the council, who's not exactly willing to hear about it, but the queen herself, uh, she gives a, a certain leniency as she recognizes Klika as well, and asks to have a special meeting with her after the council agrees to uh, allow the party that information in exchange for a quest of their own. Uh, the quest that they're given is a very peculiar one, as the elves are bound in the council to not kill any other elves. Um, that's sort of why uh, Sirithal the Lycanthrope was kicked out. Uh, but the council itself had one member who appears to be full Lycanthrope, uh, his name being Shea Thantil. Shea being sort of a moniker that helps define a, a kingly status or queen status. Thantale being his last name, but Shaythantil being his full title. Uh, they agree to go put an end to the life of Shaythantil, as he seems to be more bound in a strange curse of the wilderness and suffering. So they set off on their path to go find the floating castle and fight the uh, strange lycanthropic king. The party... Uh, along their way, encounter more lycanthropes and strange creatures of the wood. Uh, once they reach the floating castle of Shaythantil, they decide to finally drink some potions. Probably one of the funnier moments in the entire campaign, but the party, uh, on the doorstep of the king Shaythantil, they decide to drink some of these potions that they found a long, long time ago when fighting that strange hill giant in Glint, uh, where they got the metal slab. They also found a series of potions labeled Elven Friend. So the party decided, why not? We're dealing with elves, might as well take a glug, and the entire party turned, for better or for worse, into elves. 
People lost hair, people gained hair, people grew beard. I mean, people lost beards, people grew taller, people grew shorter, and they all spoke elvish. It was a very strange, strange occurrence, and it was probably one of the more hilarious moments in the entire season. Um, but with that, they meet with Shaythantil, and they find that uh, he has been cursed with lycanthropy, but he was cursed after going to the land of the immortals and trying to find a cure for his dying wife. Uh, she was dying of some sort of a disease and hoping to find some sort of cure in the woods of the immortals. Uh, he brought back immortal plants, which cursed her to be an ever-living plant, and he was cursed with uh, a curse of the wilderness, making him sort of a lycanthrope um, and being able to provide that curse to pretty much anybody around him. The party, realizing now that the immortals are not exactly a beautiful heavenly place and something of a sort of a dangerous place to go to, uh, put Shaythantil to rest and gathered their rewards. The two main rewards that we've gathered here, Anton finds a horn, a sort of a war horn that nobody else is able to blow, and on the war horn are depictions of warriors getting off of boats and whatnot, and as Anton blows the horn, the horn begins to illuminate in the images on the side. Um, and it's kind of strange, and it looks to be of a make that comes from the city of Ascabellum, where... They had received an invitation in their last stay with the queen from a mysterious courier uh, to go visit the king of Azkabellum. So, trying to figure out why these things are connected, why Anton's the only one who can blow the horn, it's definitely all a little bit eerie. But with that in mind, uh, the second gift that the party find here is one that is found after the treasure's been all divvied up. Uh, Jarzak is awoken in his sleep by Valakat the Deceiver and granted a gift, air quotes, big air quotes on that one. Uh, Valakath rewards him for overthrowing the one who would give him lycanthropy and be his master by giving him the Black Gauntlet of Valakath. Uh, Jarzak's arm pretty much rotted at the bone and fell off, and he replaced it with a black gauntlet that goes all the way up to his elbow, made of interlocking metals and clanking pieces and screechy, scratchy bits. Um, but he has all the dexterity of a typical arm, no matter what. Uh, gives him strange powers, and it's boosted by him having uh, lied to people successfully. It makes him a little bit more creepy looking, but he also has the ability now to speak to bugs. And it's a... Uh, definitely creepy. Sort of a turning point in the campaign. He manages to lie to everybody and trick them into believing he just found this amongst the treasure. But, yeah. So once the party leave and go meet with the elven court, they hear that the portal was probably once a gateway to the land of immortals, and that the Herald of Steel was uh, definitely a very powerful, if not godlike, force, uh, if it truly is from the land of immortals, and that if they would ever hope to reach the land of immortals, they would need to finish the portal. Um, but how to do that, that's a different quest altogether. This leads us to the next adventure series, known as The Lords, with the first quest being Salvation. Uh, you can find this quest in episodes 49 through 59. Uh, the party, after dealing with the elves and figuring out what they could, traveled to Glory Wake in order to say some goodbyes before heading back to the capital, Eagleheart, to tell the queen what they had found. Uh, but unfortunately, in Glory Wake, they found a bunch of refugees from Glinton Gabora, who had traveled here saying that metallic warriors and some strange metallic being had absolutely decimated their homes, their towns, and taken plenty of people off as uh, either slaves or soldiers or what have you. 
the party, deciding this was probably the Herald of Steel and being afraid for what else might be ahead of them, uh, go at breakneck speed to go figure out what's going on. They find that Gaborah and Glint are both destroyed, but while in Glint uh, and seeing in the distance the Iron Maelstrom, those soldiers taking off tons of the citizens as slaves, uh, they see that there's one iron being still within the town, and Jarzak takes it upon himself to try to fly above the battlefield and get the jump on him, uh, realizing his attacks don't seem to do much of anything to this being. And that's when the Herald of Steel truly makes himself known, attacking the party, and in a very strange and mostly villainous way, uh, stops to tell them that they have a chance where they can hopefully overthrow their rulers and become free with him as equals, so that they may destroy all kings and queens and any lords who would call themselves more powerful than the citizens. Uh, and he pretty much uh, was, in one way or another, insinuating that he would overthrow the gods themselves for what they do to people by twisting their fates. Jarzak is singled out at one point as the Deceiver senses, thanks to the gauntlet, that he must have some sort of connection to the Deceiver, and it almost seems like the Herald of Steel sort of pities him at this point and offers him sort of an olive branch, assuming he could help him, as if he had a similar experience with the Deceiver at some point. But with that, the party meet with the Queen, uh, and the Queen tells them that she is worried about the Gorgorethians, as well as the Herald of Steel, and that all is pretty much on the brink of being lost. Norhill, after agreeing to so many different jobs along the way, and only asking in return for some soldiers to be sent to the Halls of Silver and Steel, where he calls home, to help free them from the siege of whatever it is that's binding the dwarves to their halls, uh, the queen pretty much tells him to pound sand. She tells him that the deal is off, because in war times like this, she has to do what's right by her people first and foremost, and if she could honor the deal, she would, but in a case like this, she just can't do it. Norhill is absolutely upset with this whole endeavor, basically tells her to go pound sand as well, and uh, on the day after the party are knighted by the queen, and right before they get to have a big fancy ceremony in their knighting, uh, the party pretty much storms off and leaves. Uh, yeah. Again, um, the party at this point have been given an invitation by, uh, the king of Ascabellum, King Theron Ascabellum himself, uh, to go meet with him after they have an opportunity, as he says there's a very important thing he'd like to talk to them about. Uh, the party then begin their quest, uh, pretty much all in their lonesome, to go free the besieged people, the dwarves, of the Halls of Silver and Steel in the Sunderspine Mountains to the south. Uh, the party sneak in through a trash duct, and right before they enter the majority of the halls, Norhill has a strange vision where he is uh, in his own home within the mountains, uh, except some strange ghostly dwarvish form uh, holding the Silverstein, sort of the namesake of the Lord of the Hall of Silver. Uh, he hands him the Silverstein, and as he drinks it, in his dream, he can see plenty of other ghostly dwarves sort of applauding him in honor. He awakens and feels like this prophetic vision might mean something very serious for his future, so the party push extra hard and <laughs> at a breakneck speed to get through all the different sewage tunnels and whatnot to get to wherever the dwarves are being held, if they're still alive. Klika has a very strange moment where she communicates with Atyug, uh, the strange trash-eating monsters down here, and she speaks with them uh, telepathically. 
uncovering another one of Kalika's strange powers that she has as the Child of Destiny, where she may speak with pretty much any creature uh, once per day. Um, but at this point, the party find that the Halls of Silver and Steel are completely and utterly overrun by Durgar, um, the Dark Dwarves from down below, uh, and the party in some really brutal fights. This is, I think, the first time where Anton uses a fireball. But the party battle plenty of Durgar on their way before reaching sort of a dwarvish city deep within the mountain where uh, the refugees are being, or at least the survivors, are being kept here as prisoners. From what they've heard, the dwarves have been digging deep in mines that haven't really produced much of any minerals or important, you know, ore or anything like that. So it's very strange that they'd be forced to go mining in such a location, but that's pretty much the only use that they've ever had from the Durgar. And so with that, Norhill finds that uh, the highest-ranking dwarf of the Hall of Steel has been pretty much commanding these dwarves. But unfortunately for Norhill, he hears that this guy's pretty much a stooge who's been working alongside the Durgar and getting free perks along the way for being compliant. Norhill sees this as an act of borderline treason. He finds the ancestral garb, including a suit of plate uh, and the fancy helmet with horns on it that dwarves somehow always seem to have, as well as the Silverstein itself. Norhill takes this to be his namesake, and they go to do battle with the leader of the Durgar down in the mines to free the dwarves in a massive revolt. Uh, the party, when the battle looks at its most dire and dark and grim, uh, Anton blows the horn in a rallying cry, and all of the dwarves, who definitely aren't trained for battle, uh, fight the Durgar off, the party kill the leader, and Jarzak finds a magical daikatana on the corpse of the leader, which seems, even upon the first opening, to offer special strange powers to him. Uh, it seems almost like the blade itself is intelligent and speaks to him, asking him what his greatest desire in life to be is. But that brings us to the last quest of the uh, Lord's Adventure series. This is Vengeance, which you can find in episodes 60 through 67. The party find that the dwarves are now free, but with a very unfortunate situation where they can't turn to Eagleheart for defense, and they definitely can't go to the elves, and there's really no place outside of the mountain that they can safely live in without the Iron Maelstrom squeezing on them and, well, one would imagine killing them all off. So the party turned to their oldest, uh, their oldest allies, and that is the small folk of Corydale, the halflings and, and gnomes of Corydale. Uh, the party agree to trek without any food or any major coin or anything to really help them along their way uh, across the fields from the halls all the way to, uh, to Corydale. Uh, Anton really establishes himself amongst the dwarves here as he offers pretty much every day, uh, every last breath that he has and every bit of uh, energy he has to feeding them, clothing them, helping the sick, helping the injured, and the whole party pretty much carries them on their on their exodus from the halls uh, to Corridale. Jarzak, however, has been communing with the voice within the blade and uh, has sort of found some sense of, like, familiarity with the blade. But the blade definitely offers him uh, kind of a very stern and unemotional approach, telling him that anything he wants, he has to seize it himself. The Deceiver, however, reaches out to Jarzak and mentions that two adventurers would be along their way, uh, two strange adventurers would be meeting with this exodus of dwarves, and Jarzak, 
under the direction of the deceiver, would kill off the members of his own party and blame it on these adventurers, calling them assassins if he had to. Uh, Jarzak, more than willing to help out the deceiver, but realizing how dangerous this would be, uh, at the last minute before he sort of has the deceiver burst out of him like he usually does, Anton follows him over a hill in the dark of night to go see whatever's going on. Jarzak warns him to go away, and the deceiver basically arrives in a horrific dark cloud. Anton does what he can to protect Jarzak, and Jarzak does what he can to protect Anton, but at the last minute, it's the spirit within the blade that protects them both. And at a giant explosion in the valley here, just outside of Corydale, the wandering swordsman that they had offered gifts to in the Forest of the Wandering Swordsman appeared to have been the spirit within the Daikatana blade all along. And as it bursts out and protects them, assailing Thea, the deceiver himself, the party are protected. And there's sort of a newfound respect from Anton onto Jarzak for having lived with quite literally the deceiver, like, on his shoulders at all times. And in the same respect, I think Jarzak definitely developed a lot more of an understanding of Anton and a little bit more of a, a friendship for once, as these seem to be the two most distant members in the party. But with that, the two adventurers that had uh, joined the party now on their exodus were Auk, the Goliath uh, merchant, actually. Performs much more like a warrior, but he's definitely got business in mind. You just wouldn't know it. And Yigkalath, a dragonborn assassin, who certainly doesn't make her role as an assassin known until she absolutely has to. But with that, the party end up in the uh, in Corydale, where they uh, arrive in a small halfling village. Uh, they meet a halfling who calls himself the leader, named Aldo, uh, Aldo Filthistle. And Aldo Filthistle offers them quite a lot of favorable treatment. And Aldo had also offered to take them directly to the council of the staff, which is sort of the governing body of Corydale itself. Um, the party are led through these lands until they reach Enton, the capital where the council meets. And in the capital, the party are able to basically tell the Gnomish council that they desperately need an ally in this time of uh, greatest need. Uh, and the gnomes agree to it. Uh, in sort of a historic moment, saying that they would love to have some sort of forgiveness for what was originally known as their mistake, uh, right before the Battle of uh, the Bleeding Stones there, um, with that blunder at uh, Boltzcrag Peak. Uh, so it seems like everybody sort of makes amends at this point, and a true alliance is born between the dwarves of the Halls and the small folk of Corydale. Um, but what happens next is sort of an agreement of what must be done to cleanse the halls and to be able to get some revenge. The real question for the party now is, how would they be able to exact their vengeance? A few ideas come up in the court, but the one idea that seems to sound, I guess, more favorably for the now Lord of the Halls, uh, Norhill, is to let off some sort of a strange rust bomb within the halls of silver and steel. Uh, the understanding here is that the strange ant-like people known as the Aspies beneath the, uh, the halls would not be harmed by this, but instead the Duergar would in fact be killed off by it. Uh, the most unfortunate cost to this would be that all of the metals and all of the various you know, treasures beneath uh, within the halls would also be destroyed by the rust. 
Norhill figured this was the safest, most clean slate way of doing it, and that there could always be more metal to be found. Um, the party now, with this understanding, uh, realized the unsavory history behind the gnomes and what they had done in their first experiment with rusting technologies uh, was that in the hopes of creating a new metal, um, the party here that the gnomes had accidentally cursed a dragon, uh, changing it from a gold dragon into a rusted dragon, one who consistently rusts over the past you know, quite a long time here, until it's basically just a giant shambling mound of rust, a fraction of what it used to be as a gold dragon. This gold dragon, Tartharja, is in the base of the Keratos Mountains, where, uh, just north and northwest uh, of where they're at. So the party agree to go to this place, hopefully finding a bit of the scales or whatever they can from Tartharja to help make the rust bomb that they can use to eradicate the uh, Duergar. Uh, so the party make it to Tartharja's lair with the help of Caracol and Margay, um, who they had reconnected with after seeing them first in Glory Wake. But the party realized that the opening puzzle to this place, the strange mirrored wall that they had snuck in with, uh, separated the party in half, leaving Klika and, and Darzak on one half of the wall, where the Deceiver, in a surprise attack, attempted to kill both of them, and they both got out of that with <laughs> within basically an inch of their lives. Uh, the party then found Tartharja within its lair, and after nearly killing them with a breath of rusted metal, um, the party managed, or at least Jarzak and Klika, managed to pull some excuses and lies out of their butts, and managed to trick Tartharja into believing that she herself, Klika, was an immortal sent to offer some sort of forgiveness or blessing to Tartharja to save Tartharja from the fate of being such a wretched evil being as it were. Uh, Tartharja only dreamed of going to the land of immortals after death, and Klika and Jarzak lied, saying that they would promise such a thing to Tartharja. Um, after speaking with this rusted golden dragon for a while, the true pathetic nature of this being came out, and they found that Tartharja has just been rusting to death out here in the mountain, and in a way tells Klika that she sort of reminds uh, her, or at least reminds Tartharja, of her mother, and that doesn't really get much deeper than that, but definitely leaves Klika wondering who the hell her mother was and why so many random people happen to remember her, and how it is that she reminds them all of her mother. But with that, Tartharja offers the rusted scale in hopes of reclaiming the uh, Dwarvish Halls and offers them some strange gemstones as sort of gifts for their kindness and uh, for Klika's totally not fake miracles that had occurred. Uh, with that, the magical stones, including two ion stones, one that keeps the user from ever needing to breathe and the other one that keeps them from ever aging. Uh, but with that, the party return home to the council, offering them the rusted scale and explaining that Tartharja wants no vengeance and forgives the gnomes for what had occurred. And the party are now free to go on their way to Azkabellum to meet with the king himself and see what it is that he is offering them or what he wants to talk about. And that brings us to the latest adventure, uh, the most current one, which is known as The Kings. The Kings begins with the first quest, Azkabellum, 
and it starts with episode 68. So I'm not going to give any summary of those episodes as we're still in the middle of this adventure series and in this first quest. Uh, as of now, recording this, only a few episodes have come out for it and it gives you a pretty good spot to start sort of the real listening to these episodes. Backlogged enough to be able to do some good listening with enough material to kind of catch up on, but this way you at least have a very firm grounding in the campaign and you have a very good idea of what's happened up to this point. Uh, again, if I can stress anything, uh, one, thank you for listening up to this point, and I really hope that this has inspired you to listen further. Uh, but as far as things go with our party, we definitely see that Jarzak has gone through quite a lot of changes, going from a rambunctious, individualistic character willing to do anything to very much so proving he's willing to do anything. Everything from chopping off the heads of his opponents to swearing to kill party members for the Deceiver to now becoming an enemy of the Deceiver for trusting the sword over his own patron. Uh, we see Klika has grown quite a bit as well, coming from such a small, curious, strange caster background to now being sort of the, uh, I don't want to say the heaviest hitter in combat, but she definitely is that, as well as being the child of destiny, the one everybody recognizes, the strange, mysterious being with unknown roots and connections to pretty much everybody and anywhere, having some connection to the stars and the immortals and all that. So, I mean, you probably want to listen in just to hear how is she connected to all of that. Uh, Norhill has grown quite a bit as well, uh, having gone from being an outcast dwarf with no real connection to anything to now being the literal Lord of the Halls as the highest ranking military official in attendance. But now that the world is at war, he has no ability to stay home and just govern, as this is going to probably come back and bite him in the butt anyway. So, will he ever get to see his family again, now that he's left him behind? Will he ever be able to come home and become the righteous Lord of the Halls? Or is he going to die trying? Uh, Anton has also grown quite a bit, coming from a curious position as just a holy man looking to provide charity, uh, but sort of becoming jaded in his middle age after going on these quests, realizing how dark and painful the world can truly be outside of the uh, monastery, outside of the Church of Glorywake and realizing what it means to be home, you know, learning to really miss Glory Wake and everything he had, and now that he hears about, you know, Gorgareth really putting their foot all over the place, it's leaving him sort of split in a way like Norhill is, with wanting to go home and be in a safe spot, but realizing that if they don't solve this issue, as some of the only people who can, there may never be a safe space to call home. Anton's grown as more charitable than anybody in developing a near-saintly-like behavior with helping the dwarves, helping the children of Dustwind, helping pretty much anybody he comes in contact with. And thus, you know, the last thing we have to wonder is, what's going to happen with the queen? She's behaved in a very strange and aggressive way, cutting off most allies in the party, and behaving in a very cold manner outside, you know, war is besieging upon the kingdom's doors, and she's done very little to keep them off. With the deceiver following the party, hoping to get some sort of revenge for Jarzak mistreating him in their agreement, and with the Herald of Steel having made himself known, offering the party so much, but still planning on executing all leaders and lords and everybody, including the gods, one has to wonder what will happen next. And I truly hope that after listening to all of this, uh, 
you feel inspired to maybe, just maybe, listen to episode 68, The Quest Asgabellum, and the adventure, The Kings. Thank you. Hey everyone, I want to thank you all for listening to another episode of the podcast. It really means a lot to me to have everybody listening in. And if you have anything you'd like to say, any comments or anything like that, shoot me a tweet over at ygrognard on Twitter, or you can even send me an email at youngbrognard at gmail.com. I look forward to everything you guys have to say, and it's always a pleasure to engage with anybody listening to the show. And as always, be sure to keep things... Dungeons. Dungeons.